Chapter 9 of A Lady's Captivity Among Chinese Pirates in the Chinese Seas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Captivity Among Chinese Pirates in the Chinese Seas by Fanny Lovio. Translated by Amelia Anne Blanford Edwards. Chapter 9 Captain Rooney's Story expedition along the coast the pirate's mother death of a chinese the lady mary wood return to hong kong protection of the consul visit of tan sing goodbye to captain rooney overwhelmed with joy i staggered back and fell half fainting upon deck by the time that i had recovered the boats were within a yard or two of the junk my strength was all gone now, and I wept profusely. I could not speak, I could not even think, and when our friends came climbing up the sides and leaping on deck, I had no greeting to give them. They were chiefly soldiers and officers of the English Marine Service, and were accompanied by some blue jackets and one or two sailor officers. Captain Rooney was with them. He could scarcely contain his joy on seeing me again and they all crowded round me with every mark of interest and goodwill. As for poor Tan Sing, who was at first mistaken for a pirate, and had some half-dozen fists shaken in his face, but I ran and stood beside him, and Captain Rooney told them how he had saved us all, and how nobly he had behaved from first to last. Finding that I was not too weak to be moved, the sailors then carried me down into one of the boats, and I left the junk forever. While we were on our way, the officers explained to me that they had taken down the funnel of the steamer in order to deceive and surprise the enemy. As to the volley of musketry, which so alarmed me, they had fired only powder, hoping thereby to bring the pirates upon deck. Had I not gone forward again, and had I not waved my cap as I did, they would assuredly have fired next time with a deadlier purpose. As it was, the removal of the cap left my light hair visible, and Captain Rooney recognized me. When I first showed myself, they took me for a Chinese left in charge of the junk, and mistook my white signal for an alarm destined to recall the rest from shore. I also learnt that every one in Hong Kong believed either that I had been killed or that I was carried up into the country and sold. They themselves, they said, had long since given up all hope of saving me. When we were about halfway between the junk and the steamer, the former was already in flames. As we drew nearer, we were greeted with loud cheers, which our rowers returned heartily. At the head of the steps by which we mounted upon deck stood the captain, waiting to receive us. Seeing me, he came down part of the way and supported me with his arm. He looked at me with as much amazement as pity, and grateful as I was for this universal sympathy, I felt almost ashamed of the miserable condition in which I came amongst my deliverers. The deck was crowded with gentlemen, chiefly inhabitants of Hong Kong and its neighborhood, who had come out with the expedition from motives of curiosity and interest. Thankful to escape from every eye, I gladly retired to the cabin which had been prepared for my use. Here I found clothing and every necessary awaiting me, and hastened to make such a toilette 
as my weakness and weariness would allow. I looked at myself in the glass, and scarcely recognized my own features, so haggard were they and so changed. My eyes were surrounded by livid circles, and my skin was blackened by the burning sea-winds. As for my hair, that was too hopelessly matted to be disentangled all at once, so I was forced to leave it for a while in its present disorder. While I was thus employed, the boats had started away again, to the attack of three or four pirate villages which lay close by in the creeks and coves of the coast. When I was calmer and had rested a while, Captain Rooney told me all that had happened to himself and crew since we parted. Scarcely three hours had elapsed, he said, from the time of our departure, when another junk came up and took him on to Macau, leaving the crew with the wreck. Two hundred piastres was then agreed upon as the price of our ransom, and the pirates, confident of their own safety, since Tan Singh and I remained as hostages in the hands of their companions, sailed straight into port and landed openly. Two of their number then followed Captain Rooney into the town, believing that he would immediately proceed to raise money among his friends. Captain Rooney, however, did no such thing, but presented himself at once before the governor, gave his two attendants into custody, and petitioned for immediate succors of men and arms, in order to rescue his crew, his passengers, and his ship from the hands of the pirates. As Macau is a Portuguese colony, the governor could not undertake to furnish an expedition, but he granted Captain Rooney a military escort, and otherwise assisted him in removing his prisoners to Hong Kong. Arrived at Hong Kong, he went direct to Monsieur Askel, who was, as I have already said, our French vice-consul. It was midnight when Captain Rooney made his appearance at the consulate, and told his melancholy story. Monsieur Askel's trouble and amazement may easily be conceived. Late as it was, he took Captain Rooney with him, and went on board the Sparta, then lying in harbour, under command of Admiral Sir William Host. Nothing could exceed the promptness and generosity with which this gallant officer hastened to place twenty-four marines at their immediate disposal, or the courtesy with which the Peninsular and Oriental Steam Packet Company lent the Lady Mary Wood for their conveyance. By six o'clock in the morning everything was in readiness, and they steamed out of harbour, taking the two prisoners with them, an interpreter skilled in the Chinese dialects, and several gentlemen who went for curiosity and excitement. During the greater part of the day they saw not a single sail. It almost seemed as if the pirates had anticipated pursuit, and purposely abandoned their accustomed haunts. Meeting, however, with some floating fragments of charred wood, they came upon the track of the caldera, and found but a few burnt fragments of her hull remaining. Struck with horror, they scarcely dared ask themselves what had been the fate of the crew but made at once for some huts which lay at a considerable distance along the coast. These huts were inhabited by a few fishermen and their families, but they either were in league with the pirates or really knew nothing of what had taken place, for no information could be got from them. The steamer then continued to coast close inshore, and landed at every village on the chance of learning something definite. Just as they were disembarking at one of these little colonies, they were, to their surprise, greeted with a discharge of musketry, and found the inhabitants prepared to resist their landing. But it was information and not fighting of which the English were in search, 
so they hoisted a white flag and sent one of the two Chinese prisoners to treat with his countrymen. In order to ensure this fellow's fidelity, Captain Rooney pointed out to him a certain spot, beyond which he was to pass on no pretense whatever. At this point he was to stand and parley with the villagers, and if he but stepped beyond the assigned limit, he should be shot down like a dog. To these warnings he replied fairly enough, but no sooner found himself on shore and at liberty than he began running at full speed. Stop! cried the interpreter, just as the man neared the boundary which had been laid down for him. He stopped, hesitated, looked back as if measuring the distance, and then, possessed by the irresistible love of freedom, ran on again as fast as his legs would carry him. Scarcely, however, had he gone three yards when the word was given to fire, and twenty balls were lodged simultaneously in his body. He staggered, said Captain Rooney, like a drunken man, dropped upon his knees, and fell, never to rise again. The villagers, believing themselves attacked this time, replied by another volley, and a regular combat ensued. The English gained a rapid and easy victory. Most of the Chinese fled after the second or third discharge, and only two or three of their number were killed after all. The marines and sailors then sacked and fired the village, and found a considerable quantity of merchandise belonging to the caldera, which they carried away in triumph. Having as yet heard nothing of us, and seeing but little likelihood of coming up just yet with any pirate junks, the captain of the Lady Mary Wood prepared to return to Hong Kong. Scarcely had they put the helm about when they met a merchant junk, with the whole of the crew of the caldera on board. These poor fellows, it seemed, finding captain and passengers all taken from them, had made a last despairing attempt to escape in the same large boat which we vainly tried to navigate before. Although the sea and wind was, this time, more favorable to their efforts, they must have perished miserably, had they not been picked up by this merchant junk, when distant but a few miles from the wreck. The Lady Mary Wood then took them on board, and a reward of four hundred piastres was instantly paid over to the master of the junk, in acknowledgment of his humanity. The steamer then went back to Hong Kong, without having yet discovered any traces of Tan Sing or myself. Scarcely had the first expedition returned, when a second was organized, chiefly through the exertions and interest of Monsieur Askel. Another steamer, named the Anne, set off in search of us on Tuesday, the 17th of October, 1854. Accident alone led the captain to steer in the direction of that very mountain under shelter of which our captors had chanced to anchor. The steamer and the junk, as we afterwards learnt, must have even reached the same spot much at the same time, and anchored within a couple of miles of each other, under cover of the darkness. It was not till morning that they perceived and rescued us in the order which I have already related, and the date of my deliverance was Wednesday, October 18th, 1854. Listening to this account of all that had been done to save me, I quite broke down again, and had no words to speak my gratitude. Still more difficult was it to control my emotion when I read the following letter, which had been entrusted to Captain Rooney's care in case of necessity. Mademoiselle, should this letter reach you, as I fervently hope it may, take some comfort, I entreat you. If money alone be wanted for your deliverance, draw upon me for whatever ransom 
you may find necessary. G. Askel, Vice-Consul of France at Hong Kong. Almost the whole day went by, and the three boats which had gone out in the morning were not yet returned. As dusk came on, the captain of the Anne became somewhat uneasy and talked of weighing anchor and going in search of his men. Before he had time to do this, however, we were startled by the sight of a tremendous fire at a distance of some three or four miles along the coast. A canopy of smoke rose high above the flames and a red glare spread far and wide along the glassy surface of the sea. While we were yet looking, three dark objects emerged slowly from the farthest gloom and came slowly on across the lighted waters. Then the moon rose, and we recognized the boats and their gallant crews. The men were greatly fatigued, but in high spirits, and full of the day's adventures. Having landed at a pirate village, they had fought a pitched battle with the inhabitants, put some to flight and some to death, discovered and carried off another large share of the cargo of the caldera, and finally set fire to the village in four places at once. This time they brought back two prisoners. The sailors and marines vied with each other in describing their achievements, and seemed to delight in all the bloody details of the day. I heard one boasting of the number he had killed, and the hatred he bore towards these pagan pirates. Hate the men as much as you like, said one of his companions, but why be so cruel as to kill the women? I saw you shoot down a poor Chinese woman today, in cold blood. You are a fool, replied the boaster impatiently. Wasn't she some pirate's mother? Next morning, three boats, manned each by twenty hands, went out again, this time with the intention of rowing round the island and surprising the pirates in the bay at the other side. The steamer followed them at some little distance, in case of need. We watched for a long time, and saw them round the cape and make towards the bay. At the very moment, however, when the next stroke would have carried them out of sight, we heard a sudden cannonade, and saw them pulling rapidly back. The bay, it seemed, was full of junks, to the number of forty or fifty, all armed and ready for combat, and the shores were lined with fortifications. Luckily, the ball's head but whistled above the heads of the rowers, and no harm was done. Deeming it useless to attack forces so numerous, the captain prudently weighed anchor and put back for Hong Kong. Having seventy miles of sea to traverse, we did not arrive till eight o'clock the next morning. The steamer was hung with ensigns taken from the enemy, and, just as we entered the Hong Kong roads, our captain ran up a special flag with the motto, All Right, in token of my rescue. Long before we landed, the news had spread throughout the city, and the quays were crowded. Numbers of boats put off and came to meet us, and every eye was searching for me among the passengers. Dressed as I still was, however, in male attire, it was not easy to distinguish me from the rest. I found myself overwhelmed with offers of hospitality. Mr. Walker, director of the Peninsular and Oriental Steam Packet Company, pressed me to stay with his wife and family. But, grateful as I was, I had made up my mind to take no steps till I had seen and thanked the vice-consul. Just as I was about to go in search of him, he came. He took both my hands in his, and looked at me with a countenance in which pity, joy, and benevolence were each struggling for the mastery. Come with me, said he simply. I offer you shelter and protection in the name of France. This one name went to my very heart, 
and I burst into a passion of tears. I blessed the providence which had watched over me and the dear fatherland which, even in these remote climes, opened its arms to receive me. Monsieur Askell then led me to his own boat. A palanquin awaited me at the head of the landing stairs, and in a few minutes more I crossed the threshold of a French home. I spent twenty days at Hong Kong, during which time I became the object of universal consideration. I was visited by every person of good standing in the city, and scarcely an European lady there but would have done anything to help and comfort me. Notwithstanding all this attention, I was forced to keep very quiet, and for a long time was too ill to receive anyone. This immense joy, treading so closely on despair, proved too much for my strength, and an attack of brain fever followed. For several days and nights I raved of pirates, poignards, and fires. Nature triumphed at length, and, by the help of heaven, I recovered quickly. Just at this time arrived a packet of letters from France and California, and I believe the home news helped to cure me most of all. My only hope now lay with my friends and my country, and my only ambition was to return as soon as possible. To lay in a stock of suitable clothing became one of the first cares of my convalescence, and I cannot describe the satisfaction with which I once more beheld myself in the attire of my sex. I may here remark, by way of parenthesis, that in China the men are not only tailors but dressmakers. All the dresses, linen, shoes, bonnets, and so forth that I bought at Hong Kong were made by workmen. Not many days before I left, I was gratified by a visit from Tan Sing. The good old Chinese was on his way to rejoin his wife and family at Canton, and came to bid me farewell. He was so richly dressed that at first I scarcely knew him, but he told me that these clothes were all lent to him by a friend since he, like myself, had been robbed of his entire wardrobe. We talked for a long time of all that we had suffered together, and parted with tears on both sides. As he left, he forced me to accept a richly embroidered handkerchief, as a souvenir of his friendship. My departure was now fixed for the 11th of November, and the French government paid my passage to Marseille per Indian mail packet. On the evening of the 10th, I received a visit from Captain Rooney and one of the lieutenants of the Anne. This officer, after congratulating me on my improved health and appearance, presented me with a book, which I instantly recognized as that very German volume in which I had scratched with a hairpin the records of my captivity. He had found it while searching the junk, and chancing to take it up, opened the pages at the precise spot in which I had written. He wished, he said, to keep the book in memory of me and my strange adventures, and begged to be allowed to take it home with him to England. I was, of course, but too happy to grant so trifling a favor to one who had aided in my preservation. As for Captain Rooney, he seemed sad and desponding enough. He felt, he said, as if some fatality hung over him, and, grown weary of a sea life, now only longed to return to his home and his country. He wished me farewell for ever. If my prayers be granted, said he, you will sail safely this time. Fear not. Providence watches over you. End of chapter 9 Recording by Karen